Closure, I'm Robin Farzad. Our whole reason for being was to help Mrs. Jones, who lived out in the country, that would have a better life if we had educated and supported her advisor. If you ask my wife today, you said, Cindy, in 1987, what was your and Tom's hope for your finances for the future? She would tell you that we hoped at some point in our life we could save $10,000. Be the market. Don't beat the market. That's been the big mega trend of investing over a decade, with passive index and ETF specialists like Vanguard and BlackRock taking in trillions while active investing is withering on the vine. Is that as good as it gets? My guest, an investing legend, thinks you should strive higher. Stay with us. This week's episode's made possible by our friends at Health Warrior. Free shipping over $35 every day, hassle-free returns. You can join the rewards program, and here's a great deal on the website. For $9.99, you get a box of six of the best flavors in one premium package with free priority shipping. Every box includes acai berry chia bar, caramel sea salt chia bar, chocolate peanut butter chia bar, a coconut chia bar, dark chocolate peanut pumpkin seed bar, honey sea salt pumpkin seed bar. I love all of these, and this is a great deal for $9.99 at healthwarrior.com. And by Elwood Thompson's, our favorite market here at the top of Carytown in Virginia. I love Indian Wednesdays. I love the Beat Cafe, the sprawling breakfast hot bar every morning with those incredible vegan biscuits. I like to chug with a with a nice iced tea from the juice and iced tea machine, a cold brew coffee. I practice what I preach because I'm there all the time. Visit them at Elwood and Thompson Streets, hence the name at the top of Carytown, and at elwoodthompsons.com. Joining us in studio, I am so glad to have you here, sir. Tom Dorsey, CEO of Dorsey Holdings, founder of Dorsey Wright and Associates, which the NASDAQ bought in 2015. In past lives, Tom was a broker at Merrill Lynch and an options guru at Wheat First Securities. He's been in the Wall Street Journal, Forbes, Barron's. Do you tap dance? Do you play the guitar? Uh, no, I don't, Robin. I don't tap dance. I, I have a very hard time playing the radio, much less the guitar. <laughs> Thank you, thank you for coming on the show. It's just, you know, I've, I I realized that I've I've quoted you in in past lives myself at Smart Money Magazine. I've called you, you know, early at, at at Business Week. You are very widely quoted. Well, that takes us back in the day, Robin. I'm talking, you know, you're talking about back in uh, the 1990s. <laughs> Tell me about the Nifty Fifty and Westinghouse Electric. No, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Look, it's I I got to tell you. Um, and I'm not getting sponsorship money from them. I wish I did. My favorite brand in the world probably second to RC Cola, is Vanguard. I love them. I love the fact that through some dumb luck, nine years ago, this week, I was riding a train down with Jack Bogle from Philadelphia to D.C. to profile him for Business Week magazine. And he says something like to the effect of, you know, Robin, I, I, I don't move money around a lot, but, I, you know, in 2000, I went all to bonds because it was so, you know, so crazy what was going on with overvaluation, and I would just be amazed if we fall into outright depression. I mean, people should be going into equities in this. And I thought, gosh, maybe this is kismet. I get to be with this legendary person, the, the, one of the founders of the mutual fund, the founding father of Vanguard, while the market's setting a 12-year low in, in, in kind of um, real terms, it was even lower going back a longer distance. And I doubled down my investments in Vanguard, and my biggest regret is I didn't put in more. Well, I'll tell you something, Robin. Interesting you brought that up first because uh, a few months ago, I was at a cocktail party with Jack. And I went up to Jack and I said, I said Jack, I said, you know, the older I get, the more I get like you. And he said, Tom, what do you mean? 
I said, I want to drive a straight line. And I'm thinking the whole time is when I used to be a stockbroker back in the 70s. I've been on Wall Street 43 years now. Back then, everyone had a defined benefit plan. And what they wanted was what was hot and what was not. And we were trading stocks, getting the fastest stock you that's could. A, that's on a defined benefit being a pension. Yeah, right? you had your pension. You just had to come to work for 30 years. Sure. If you could make it 30 years, you got it. Right. Then that, that all changed. And I can explain how that changed in a minute. But I mentioned to Jack. I said, the older I get, the more I get like you. I, wa- I want to drive a straight line. So I was zigzag from the beginning where people were looking at trading stocks, and that was a losing proposition Mm. because you were looking for the the next hot thing for a few points, trade it, jump into something else, and that just doesn't work. Now, after 43 years in this business, I realized that the way to be successful in this market is like if you're going from – let's say, uh, Robin, you're going from Richmond, Virginia to Washington, D.C., you're driving up 95 North. Yeah. That's a straight line. Don't take a rural route exactly. with a bunch of stoplights. And- you got it. Exactly. Yeah. All of a sudden, the traffic begins to back up. Back in the day when I was young, I would take a rural route. I tried to get around the bulge, and the next thing I know, I would have had added another 40 points onto my drive. You would have hit a horse. When really, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it could have hit a horse. When actually, what you need to do is get in the left lane and pass someone and get back in the right lane. Simplicity. Drive a straight line. Simplicity. And to that point... What could be more simple than the Vanguard total market U.S. total international? Set it and forget it. You're exactly right. But there are ways to do better than that while you're still indexing. Tell me how. I mean, everybody well, seems to have a better mousetrap. And, you know, we had we had Tom Gaynor of Markell in here a few weeks ago. And we asked a kind of meaning of life question is to the extent that the majority of people out there are better, best off indexing and being passive indexers, how much diversification is too much diversification? Jack Bogle himself says, you don't really need to go past the S&P 500. You get redundant at that point. If the U.S. broad market broadly gets half of its earnings abroad, you don't need to go buy the MSCI Emerging Market Index. You don't need to buy uh, East, you know, uh, Europe and uh, uh, developed Asia small caps. You're I mean, exactly the granularity right. kind of at some point becomes... Uh, uh, an, an exercise in just friction for friction's sake. But here's the thing. Jack himself has created, Vanguard themselves have created a number of Standard & Poor's funds. So if let's say a person came to me and said, Tom, I've been reading article after article that 92% of active managers never outperform the S&P 500. I would like to be in the top 8% of all money managers and just own the S&P 500. My answer would be, I think it's a great idea to to drive a straight line, to index, to, to do that type of thing. But do you realize, I would ask you a question, Robin, do you think the S&P 500 can beat the S&P 500? How would that work? How would that work? Now that's the question to the customer. <laughs> well, okay. Here. If you if you change the meaning of the S and P five hundred, people no the same five hundred stocks. Well, they don't all appreciate that it's not it's not splitting up a uh, hundred dollars into little increments of the same. Increment. I mean, Apple is huge, obviously disproportionately huge. It's much bigger than say the New York Times, Facebook, Amazon. And the bigger they get, the more outsize of an effect that they have on the index. And exactly. So it's a self-fulfilling However, prophecy. however, Robin, you're talking about a capitalization-weighted index. There is also the S&P 500 that's equal-weighted, the same 500 stocks. So you have, you have Congress, which were the, the largest states have the most congressmen. Sure. That's cap-weighted. And, the and then you have the Senate, which is equal-weighted. Equal weighted. The same 500 stocks trade totally differently. So my question to the customer is, are you aware that the two, the two S&P 500s are trade differently? Then let's take it one step further. Are you aware also that there is an S&P 500 growth? There's an S&P 500 value. There is where, a, you're, where you're julienning the cheapest parts, the fastest-growing parts. Right. You're kind of carving out. 
And this is what Jack Welch has built. This is Vanguard. Jack Vogel. I mean, excuse yeah. me, Jack Vogel. <laughs> Jack, no, Jack, Jack Welch. Yeah, that's a different story. <laughs> I hope Long he time. doesn't get booted from the <laughs> S&P 500, right? A long story ago. Yeah, Jack Vogel, what he has created. Now, if you take, there's about 11 different S&P indexes. So if a person said, I want to index, well, there's 11 different things. Do you want to own the mid cap? Do you want to own the small cap? And these small caps are billion-dollar companies. Do you want to own cap weight? Do you want to own equal weight? Do you want to own growth? Do you want to own, own value? There's the valid questions because if you look at the one S&P 500 that beat everything hands down last year and the year before, is the S&P 500 growth. V-O-O-G is the symbol. That's Vanguard. So my point is, there within the confines of indexing and passive investing, you can be active. But you don't have to be active to the point where you're jumping over the guidelines. You're going to, you're going to Richmond to Washington, D.C., get in the left lane and pass and get back in the right lane. So with Dorsey Wright, the most important thing that we have done in 30 years is relative strength. And that was calculated and created by Chartcraft back in the 1960s. Relative strength calculations that we do and have never changed for 30 years is we divide one thing by another. In other words, if you have fourth grade division, you're good with what Dorsey Wright does. If I took Coca-Cola and I divided the price of Coca-Cola by Pepsi-Cola, that division will give me a number. I then plot that on a point-and-figure chart, which is X's and O's, and that plot on the point-and-figure chart will then create that chart that looks like a trend chart, but it's not. It's a relative chart relative from Coca-Cola to Pepsi. So what's your most analogous mousetrap to the S&P 500? What would you, with your name on it, compare to the S&P 500? I'm... I'm not sure I understand exactly what so you mean. So a Dorsey Wright, if you've built – you're not just rebranding an equal weight S&P 500. You're doing one that, which has a, a – I would call it smart indexing. So in other, words, right. in, in other words, I call it smart indexing what I created. What I'm saying is when I do these relative strength calculations, I can take those 13 or 11 or 12 or whatever Vanguard has that are S&P indexes. I can then put them into what's called a matrix, and I make them arm wrestle each other. On a relative strength basis, what will happen then is the is it, the, I'll get a lineup of the, of the best, the strongest to the worst. The strongest is the Vanguard uh, VOOG, which is the growth. Well, I want to take the top five, the top five, and when we go back and test that, uh-huh. if you hold if you hold those top fives for six months and then re 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 arm wrestle again, take the top five, and that hasn't changed in the last in the last year. That is a way of smart indexing. So what I'm doing is I'm still driving a straight line. I'm indexing. I'm, 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 I'm doing what most money managers can't outperform, and I'm being somewhat active. So in other words, I'm giving myself the ability to pass a car and get back in the right lane, but not jump over the lane into the oncoming traffic or jump off the, off the road. And into how, the how would it compare as long back as you can go to the Over total time, it of compares extremely well. Extremely well. For example, are the drawdowns are the drawdowns smaller? Would it have had a less acute two thousand and eight? Here's why: it's almost like you're in my head, Robin. Exactly. One of the things that we have along with that, um, one of the charts that we look at is MNY MKT. That's the symbol for money market. So we put that in as if it was an index itself. If money market moves up to the top, then the whole position goes into cash. 
That happened in 2008. Wow. So money market moved up while the other indexes were getting worse and worse and worse. Money market being stable stayed the same, and those fell below money market, and the whole portfolio became money market in 2008. Hmm. So those are the periods. There are only two periods in time where money market had to go into the account. One was 2002. Which is a great time. And one was 2008. So how has your performance been ever since you've, you've kind of put this to work? Well, the performance, it has underperformed the best one, which is the VOOG growth. Mm -hmm. Overall, the Standard & Poor's 500 cap weight, it has slightly underperformed, which is fine with me because I want to keep driving a straight line and be as close to uh -huh. that as possible. But I also know where now we have moved towards small cap. As small cap begins to come into the equation, that's where I'm going to excel. I mean, so, hasn't it been a huge period overwhelmingly of small cap outperformance, let's say, since the turn of the century? I can't believe, by the way, I always say turn of the century. I'm thinking like Theodore Roosevelt. But no, it's when I came of age no. in the markets in 2000 when everyone was talking <laughs> Cisco, Microsoft, Dell, GE. And it was the, the neglected small caps that's which were right. trading at a discount that have owned the past 15 You're years. You're dead on it. Here's what happened. Here's what happened, Robin. And at Dorsey Wright, we have to watch these things. Mm -hmm. We watch everything that happens. The computer systems watch it all. All of a sudden, and you're dead on the money, back in October of the year 2000, after large cap being the major play, being, being the dominant place to invest, it switched to small cap. When capitalization weighted was the place to be, it switched to equal weight. Mm. When growth was the place to be, it switched to value. All in one month in the year 2000. If an advisor then bought his customer an equal weighted value small cap fund uh -huh. and then left his customer alone for the next 13 years, he outperformed everything. <laughs> outperformed everything. What about international? Well, international is a different, different ball of wax. In the year 2000, in the decade of 2000, a lot of that decade, you, if you were any, anything but 2000, you under, or excuse me, international, you underperformed. So international has become very important, I think, because you have developed markets, which would be more Europe-centered. Mm -hmm. You have emerging markets, which would be more Asia-type centered. And these, these emerging markets are going to become developed markets. I think I think Indonesia is about the fifth largest economy in the world now. Has well, and look at South Korea. South How Korea, is South same Korea thing? still an emerging market? I, and to the extent you've been a critic of traditional indexing, I have a big beef. I mean, Israel is looked at as a developed market. Um, South Korea is looked at as an emerging market. Greece and Argentina have fallen back to frontier status. Frontier status because exactly. of their debt misadventures. In the end, shouldn't you know what is it like? You know, in finance, an efficient frontier thing. Shouldn't we? be aiming to own a piece of every possible investing asset on the planet at the lowest possible cost with the lowest amount of churn. Didn't Jack Bogle do that? Put it well, together? Well, I don't know if that's the correct proxy nope. if the S&P 500 is a... I'm saying, you know, on, on one year that maybe... Total world. So total world, it's still cap-weighted, though. Mm -hmm. I still get, you know, the Novartis and the, you know, the, the big right. um, yep. HSBC effect and everything. I'm talking... Is there is there a cheap and easy way? And by the way, it's never been as easy. If you go and look at the list of BlackRock ETFs and Vanguard ETFs and Schwab and all these other things, they're slicing and dicing it in unimaginable ways. You were a broker. It used to be that you had to wait until you know four o'clock to place a mutual fund trade or right. call your broker. You know you were there before the the institutional the 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 sure you know, re deregulation re-regulation of commissions. It's almost too easy right now. And then you get people like Bogle and all them saying, "No, stick to the simple thing. Avoid the siren calls of the." 
you know, the Bitcoin ETF, the biotech ETF, the biotech growth, the emerging market dividend income. I mean, he's exactly right. He's exactly right. Because if you want to, you either want to have fun in the market or you want to build wealth. And if you're interested in building wealth, you've got to take that longer-term approach. And I'm not a longer-term guy saying, oh, just buy the S&B and you're going to be fine by and by, you know, 30 years from now. I'm not that kind of person. I want to be active to a point that makes sense. The older I get, the less I want, the less I want to jump around and take those tributaries and try to, try to get through the slow traffic. Uh-huh. I want to stay right there and get in the, in, in the lane and pass whenever I can. However— I like to go cow tipping on occasion. <laughs> anyway, I digress. Like yeah. I normally do. Well, see, people have lost sight of what equity is also. Um, because with the, with the exchange traded fund, which, which the first one came into existence in the mid-1980s, was called the Cash Index Participation Unit. And the Philadelphia Stock Exchange uh-huh. uh, brought that public. We traveled to 25 different venues uh, making presentations with that. And it was taken away by the by the futures exchange, mm. because what they did is they backed that first ETF, which was uh, which was uh, BIG, which was the Dow Jones, and SNP was Standard Poor's. They backed it with futures mm. instead of stock. Instead so of stock. the futures exchanges sued them and got the product, put it up on the shelf, and said thank you. Did you ever imagine that indexing and ETFs would take off the way they did since say two thousand and one? Well, I mean, um, the, the, the the first traditional the spider goes back to what. Well, 94, think, 93. Think about before the spiders. When I ran the option department of Wheat for Securities, Philadelphia Exchange came out with options on indexes, which were the SOX, mm-hmm. semiconductors, yeah, yeah. which was the gold, the XAU. And this was the first time we could actually trade an option on an index instead of a stock. So that was the first volley over, over, the, over the bow, that things were changing, that indexing was beginning to come in. And the Philadelphia Stock Exchange back then was, was the most progressive exchange in America. They're the ones who were bringing all the really interesting products. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We're joined in studio by Tom Dorsey, co-founded Dorsey Wright & Associates, uh, which was sold to uh, the NASDAQ in 2015. He's the author of Point and Figure Charting, the essential application for forecasting and tracking market prices, thriving as a broker in the 21st century, and Tom Dorsey's Trading Tips, a playbook for stock market success. I always wonder, um, you know, the, the Iranian uh, uh, relatives who always want to lecture, you know, market boy Robin Farzan on something are always telling me to be mindful of commodities. Maybe it's because we come from an oil-producing country and my ancestors were rug merchants and you're always mindful of real hard commodities. But it's vexingly difficult to expose yourself to those through ETFs. They don't quite lend themselves because of expiration. I remember there was a Business Week cover five, six years ago, do not buy commodity ETFs. You're not getting something that tracks the underlying asset as well. They're distortions. What do you say when people come to you and talk about commodities? Well, number one, not many people come to me and talk about commodities. When they were I in vogue, though, when oil broke $140 or when food prices shot up, it's all people wanted to talk about. Yeah, but they're more than likely going to buy some food-related type of stock or something that they understand. Back when I was a stockbroker, to trade commodities, you had to have a special account. You had to have a special temperament. You had to have a certain net worth to trade commodities. Yeah, wasn't that orange juice futures crop report thing on the Philadelphia Exchange and trading places? Yeah, absolutely. Am I dating myself, no. Mr. Dorsey? <laughs> Actually, no, call me Tom. <laughs> but, but, but futures op- offer the direct uh, mainline approach to owning commodities. And because futures, um, the, the contracts can be very large. It's not for everyone. With commodities now, you can buy corn. C-O-R-N is the symbol. Yeah. We, we, Oil, GLD, gold. So it makes more sense for the average individual, if he wants to own gold, buy GLD. 
you know, it tracks gold. So there's a lot of exchange-traded funds out there that a person can get involved in if he wants to own hard, hard assets or go buy a house somewhere or buy something, buy a farm. Buy something tangible. Yeah, something tangible. Exactly. What, where, when does it start to get too pretty for you? Like are there really exotic things that attempt to track something? It's, it's, it's like too cute for comfort? Yeah. It, once, once you get past the basics, the, see, now they're bringing exchange-traded funds that are relatively meaningless. Um, the, I could name a bunch of them. I won't bother. I, I don't want to do that. But they, they get too cute. You want to stay as straight a line as possible. You want to own gold, GLD. You want to own gold miners? There's gold miners. There's all kinds of ETFs that you can buy out there that, that will allow you to drive that straight line rather than pivoting back and forth. And most of them don't get most of them don't get enough. You have to have you have to have hundred million dollars in an exchange traded <laughs> fund to make it worthwhile. Sure. You've got to be able to get that. Yeah. So at Dorsey Wright, we have a number of exchange we were one of the first ones in the ETF business with our technical leaders and that type of thing. So we know what it takes to 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 have a fund that will have staying power. You've got to have clients like our research side of the equation where we have uh, uh, so many customers who take our daily research. They are natural buyers of the things that we do. So we have numerous exchange-traded funds out there, Dorsey Wright does, that have had staying power since, good Lord, in, into the 2000s. Do you worry about correlations? How when everything is doing well, everything is go, 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 and risk is on, it's hard to buy something that zags when stuff is zigging? Yeah, I think I think that's a problem too. You know, you like just take for instance if if you if you bought the Standard and Poor's 500, you said, "Boy, I really did well this year." But if you bought the Standard and Poor's 500 Vanguard growth, you kick butt. You know, so there's ways. There's so many different things that outperform one another. If you look at our if our our, our technical leaders index, which has been one of the best momentum plays uh, you can imagine. Um, iShares came out with with a symbol MNTM, which outperforms the, uh, our technical For momentum? Yeah. It's a momentum fund. Outperforms it. But if you go back into the 1990s, you'll see where we go through a market where our technical leaders outperform the MTM, MTMU, MMU, I think it is. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure of the exact symbol. So I would look at something like that and say, you know what, we, are we going to get back in a market like in the 1990s? Very possibly. Who knows? So I want to buy some of each. I want to buy 50%. Of, of, of our uh, technical leaders, 50% of this MTM, and I'm, I'm good. So you can, you can do all <laughs> kinds of things with exchange-traded funds. Take, for instance, sell and may and go away. There's, that's viable. Sell and may and go away. Sell and may and go away. So let's say I was looking at the Standard & Poor's 500 and the Standard & Poor's 500 low volatility, SPLV. So I could say in May, when I want to sell in May and go away, I'm going to own 70% of this piece of my portfolio in the Standard & Poor's low volatility and 30% in, let's say, our technical leaders or, 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 or whatever you want to own as the, the beta part of that. Come November 1st, you're going to switch it around. The part that was low volatility will become 30%. The part that is the beta side will become 70%. And that adds value just doing those Beta things. has bigger ripples, just to demystify it for our listener. Low volatility, you're right. talking soup companies, utilities. <clears throat> right, exactly. And when you look at sell a man go away, there's a reason these old market adages are what they are. You think because they're true? They're true. One of, my, one of my mentors, Mike Burke, was the editor of Chartcraft. And he once told me, and I never forget this, and I probably tell people this once a week. He said, Tom, he says, the market will do what it wants to do. And that was it. That's all he said. And I said, you know what? 
when you think about that, I hear people come up to me all the time. What do you think about Trump? Uh, he's he's going to do this uh, tax thing. He's going to do a tariff on this. What do you... I don't read that stuff. I haven't looked at a nightly business, not, not business report. Well, what did they, what did they ask? What did they ask Ace Greenberg after the crash of '87? He said markets fluctuate. Next, what yeah, was exactly. the famous line. Yeah, well, it wasn't Ace Greenberg. It was actually J.P. Morgan. All right, they, it was J.P. Morgan back in the '20s when someone said, uh, "Mr. Morgan, what do you think the market will do?" He said it will fluctuate, <laughs> and that's really that's that's the only answer. The only answer. You know, I want to get back, Tom, to your investing coming of age. You often you, you you're often interviewed, and you said that it was almost by accident. You you had this uh, epiphany that it you was, could build a better mousetrap. Take me back. It was totally by accident. I I I was an option strategist at Merrill Lynch, uh, mainly because after my first year as a stockbroker at Merrill Lynch, it was very difficult opening accounts because Merrill because people had just gone through a massive bear market from 1973 through 74. They lost 50 to 60 percent of their portfolio. They called their brokers up back in those days and said, send me what's left in the portfolio and never call me again. Wow. In steps me, brand new kid in his 20s. I'm, I'm ready to go. No one told me there was a bear market. So I'm calling people up. Hello, Mr. Jones. My name's Tommy Dorsey. My company's Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner, and Smith. The reason I called is twofold. First, I'd like to introduce myself. And second, I'd like to avail the services of my firm to you. And you would invariably hear, Mr. Dorsey, you can go to hell. And the phone would slam. Wow. And... I'm thinking, why would somebody tell a, a nice kid like me? Then I found out why. They'd been wiped out totally. So my first year as an advisor was very difficult trying to sell stocks to it from people who didn't want to be sold stocks. So I decided to become an architect. So I moved to the options market and learned everything I could about options. Long story short, Wheat First Securities a number of years later offered me the opportunity to come across the street and develop and manage their first option strategy department. And Wheat was right across the street from Merrill Lynch. So... The first day, the first person I hired came into my office and he handed me a book. He said, I'd like you to read this, Tom, so you know the, the, the operating system in my mind. And the book was, was entitled The Three-Point Reversal Method of Point-and-Figure Stock Market Trading, hmm. written by A.W. Cohen in 1947. And he said, I'd like you to read this so you understand the way I think. I took that to Virginia Beach with my wife my, myself that, that weekend. And I opened it up and I started reading the book. And I read the first paragraph of the introduction and my life profoundly changed that moment. Mm. If there was a holy grail to find in investing, I had found it. In that introduction, I still didn't know what point-and-figure charting was. The introduction told me what it was and it brought me back to my economics education at Virginia Commonwealth University right across the street here and the irrefutable law of supply and demand. And I said to myself, I'm home. Because that is it. If there are more buyers than sellers willing to sell, price must rise. If there are more sellers than buyers willing to buy, price must decline. If buying and selling is equal, price must remain the same. There is nothing else. If that's the case and, 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 and how stocks move and any price changes, then when you're putting information down, down the, um, uh, um, the, the funnel, let's say, and you're stuffing fundamental research in there and all kinds of ideas and whatnot, and you come down to the tip of that funnel, it's the irrefutable law of supply and demand that causes that price change. So I thought to myself, why don't I just go directly to the tip of the, of the funnel? And that's what this method was. It was simply a logical, organized way of recording the imbalance between supply and demand, nothing more, nothing left, straightforward, no sleight of hand. And I said, I've arrived. This is, I will go no further than this. To me, this is the holy grail. And that night I realized that my reason for being here on earth was to learn this methodology and teach it to my brothers and sisters for the rest of my life. 
and I've done that. So how did you take it to bank management? To I didn't take it to bank management. I knew I had to leave and start my own company. Mm-hmm. But I had just started. That was my first day starting the option department, so I couldn't leave and do that. I ran the option department for nine years, and I said, <laughs> by the age 40, I must start my own company. So at 39, I turned my resignation in, took my right-hand man, Watson, with me, and we went down the street. We had 90000 Elementary, my dear Watson. Elementary, exactly. We had $90,000 borrowed, and that was it, and, and we had nothing but hope. What year was this? 1987. Ten, ten months later, the market crashes. What was that like? That was harrowing. Did I you mean, know you were in a melt-up period? I mean, at that point, did you become cognizant of fundamentals? This is an unusual market environment. The bull market of the 80s is now, what, five years old? No, no, no. We would never think that way. We, we would look at the charts and whatnot. And what happened with us, the, very, the only time that Dorsey Wright ever marketed or ever did any advertising was in the crash. By our most important market indicator, the New York Stock Exchange Bullish Percent Index, created by Chartcraft back in the 50s, was our most important thing. We watched that very carefully. That ended up, without being too long in the tooth, that got us out September 4th or 5th, somewhere around there in 1987. From that day forward to the crash, we didn't know anything to do but write how to protect your portfolio with options because we started as an option strategy department. Point and figure was the caboose. When the market crashed, I took the point and figure, put it forward, took the engine, which was options, put it as a caboose, and said, we disavow knowledge of options. <laughs> we, we knew option business would never be the Dude, same. So were that. you mindful of the fact that this was a, kind of a historic moment? I mean, a 20, 25% Absolutely. downturn and everything. Were you thinking at that, this point, I need to expand my, my, my reading? I need to go back and look at the crash? No, the I didn't ha- and- no, I didn't have to do any of that because what we were doing and what Chartcraft had created in the 50s got us out a month ahead of time. So all I had to do was let people know what we were doing and why we got out and what we did. Do you remember what, what, your, what your size was, what the asset base was by the time? Oh, our asset base? We probably had a total of six customers. And so were these people enormously grateful afterwards, like, this kid has the crystal they ball? Were, they were customers like uh, brokerage firms. Uh, take, for instance, Wheat First Securities yeah. was our first broker. So they would take our research and put it out to all their, their whole, whole brokerage firm. Were you getting crazy calls like Elaine Garzarelli is up here and Tom Dorsey's down here and that you got people out, the guy who saw the great crash? Yeah, Elaine Garzarelli got all of the benefit from it. I mean, and we we didn't. However, we stayed in our company, Dorsey Wright & Associates, for 30 years. But you would think people after that, especially locally, would echo chamber like, this guy figured it out. He saved us from a one-day 20% drawdown. We did get a lot of customers that way. But it was only Watson and myself. You know, our our whole— reason for being was to help Mrs. Jones, who lived out in the country, that would have a better life. If we had educated and supported her advisor, she would have a better life. If you ask my wife today, and you said, Cindy, in 1987, what was your and Tom's hope for your finances for the future? She would tell you that we hoped at some point in our life we could save $10,000. Hmm. You know what I was doing in 1987? I was gearing up for the uh, Def Leppard LP yeah. hysteria. Uh, and I didn't know much. I think I was watching the Iran-Contra hearings and everything just to save $10,000. It's amazing yeah. to hear you and your wife talk about that. And when I was in college, all I wanted out of life was enough money to afford a cable package with Sports Center, a fridge full of Snapple iced tea. And at that time, you know, I'm coming on my 20th college reunion, there was this JVC 200-disc CD carousel that I just wanted to save up for. And, you know, here we are with a with iPhones, and yeah, Spotify, absolutely. And you sold, and and, and you sold, uh, you sold Dorsey Wright to Nasdaq in 2015. How many years after its founding? Uh, 28, Almost 28 years. Wow. 
and it's still in existence. I mean, it still runs at at, uh, at NASDAQ. The beauty of that now is we have NASDAQ's facilities, NASDAQ's, all NASDAQ's capability, which is beautiful. Dorsey Wright and Associates needed to be handed off to a larger institution. What was the growth like? So take me from, say, $90,000 and six clients to, was it growing by leaps and bounds in yeah. the late 80s and early 90s? Yes. The late, 80, the late 80s, after the crash of 2000, I mean, after of 1987, we were... It was like we had taken a bunch of punches in, 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 in a round, sure. but we're still standing and we're still moving forward, mainly because there was only two of us. We had a Tandy 3000 and we just <laughs> needed enough money to pay for our own expenses. But no Quotron, no Bloomberg? No such thing, no. We had a Tandy 3000. <laughs> Did you yeah. even have a brick phone like Gordon Gecko? No. <laughs> we had none of those things. We had none of those things. We used to have a 900 line. Uh-huh. We used to do that. Uh, but, but no, and I would travel everywhere. I was the Pied Piper. If you would listen to me speak, if you walk slow enough across the street, you're going to get a lecture by me. Yeah. When I was in the airports, I would, I would put Dorsey Wright flyers and handouts in the men's room. So that if you're sitting there, you need to read about Dorsey Wright and Associates. But wasn't the evangelist of that time of that, of that uh, uh, bull market that was about to happen in the early to mid-90s, um, Peter Lynch? Merrill Lynch and Peter telling Lynch, people to buy what, you, buy what you know? Absolutely. He had the voice there. But we were the little guys that were coming up. And we were the little guys that were not stopping. And we continued on. Our client base now, if you ask, and I don't say this self-servingly, but you can ask anybody on Wall Street if they know about Dorsey Wright and Associates, and they will. And they probably are clients of ours in some, in some way, shape, or form. So we were the little guys that just came in. The big guys, they got all the verbiage. They got all the front page news and whatnot. We just kept chugging along and getting new customers because we understood the advisor. We understood the advisor's space. The advisor can't listen to a Peter Lynch and say, I'm going to fashion my whole business around what he does. He can't. He has so many different customers. He has to have a logical, organized approach that he can sit and look at a customer and say, Mr. Jones, let me explain to you exactly what it is I do. Why I'm different. And you can't say that it's because I do what Peter Lynch does. Why would, why would a sell-side advisor, why would somebody at a Morgan Stanley Goldman Sachs give you time of day when I thought the nature of the beast was selling internal in-house products? It was. Back in the 70s, that's exactly what it was. As you went further on, what happened was we went, we went from a commission-based business back in the 70s. That's what you did was charge commission. Right. When the banks bought out the companies, like Merrill Lynch, when I worked at Merrill Lynch, it was Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner, and Smith. Mm-hmm. That was back in, the, back in the real old days. Then they were bought out by a bank. Now they're called Merrill Lynch. The bank is used to steady income. We understand fees. We understand charging for checking accounts. We understand these things. So we want the advisor to move toward the fee base. But here's a problem. You're an outsider speaking truth. Right. You're saying, I, if you, I can criticize the S&P 500. <clears throat> these guys don't. I, I was there on the sell side. I worked at a brokerage firm. We had a minimum of $10 million you know, per client accounts and high net worth. And Everybody knew Goldman Sachs funds were not great performers, but it was pay to play. If you invested with Goldman Sachs, you'd get dibs on the hot IPO, and eBay would come around, and eToys would come around. Exactly. Brokers, I'm not so sure until the recent age where you had a lot of independent brokers after 2008, 2009 come out with open architecture and to kind of voluntarily espouse something like a fiduciary standard who are willing to look at better products for the client's sake. But the ship was changing. Mm. The ship was changing. I had to look at myself 
as a pilot fish. Have you ever looked at a pilot? You look at a shark. Mm-hmm. When you look at the TV and you watch the Discovery Channel. Pilot fish is riding the shark. Right next to it. Yeah. Right next to it. I was the pilot fish. The shark was Merrill Lynch, was Morgan Stanley, was Goldman Sachs, was these, these companies. I had to be going in the direction they wanted to go. So when they moved away from commission business and more toward fee business, I had to move my product. I had to develop my product and my education and my sales for their brokers to do what their Did any of these big to. sell-side whales, the wirehouses, did they, any of them try to buy you? No, they did not. None of them tried to buy us. Um, we had a couple of approaches of, of smaller type firms, but, but nothing that, that made any sense. It was almost as if it was a godsend that, that we were supposed to be in business the way we were in business. We were supposed to continue educating the way we educated, and we were supposed to continue doing what we do. I just wrote an article the other day. We'll, it'll be in our report. And it's, is, is it AI or just I? Is it artificial intelligence? That's what we talk about today. Computers learning from each other. And the computer says, oh, well, these things are happening now. Therefore, we change the way we manage this portfolio. AI is saying we do this. And I'm saying, you know what, at Dorsey Wright, it's just I. It's not artificial intelligence. It's intelligence. It's the same thing fourth grade division we did 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. We do today. But we were only able to do 200 of those charts a week 30 years ago. You know how many we do a night now? 14 and a half million. We compare everything to everything. We follow every country in the world. Could you give me an idea of the asset size that you had, the client base, when you sold to NASDAQ in 2015? Well, it's uh, – Just for an apples to apples comparison, if we start with six people and maybe $90,000, a couple hundred grand – in 87? Well, with multi-millions. I mean, it's, it's – NASDAQ paid $225 million for the company. And, I mean, that's – you can get that on Google. So when you look at the multiple on that, it was a pretty high multiple. What happened was the, our exchange-traded funds really took off. So we became a two-sided company. Not only do we have the, um, the base of, of subscriptions where advisors will take our research every single day – and they and 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 they learn what we do. They say we want to be one of you, and they and they have for twenty years. Then the other side is let's let's buy the the exchange traded funds they come up with. Take for instance the first trust five. The first trust five was a model. We have eighty models. If you want to use the model, you can use a model on our system, and we'll notify you whenever there's a change. You'll get an email. You make the change. Well, the first trust five had four and a half billion dollars in that model itself. Mm. Then we came out with an exchange-traded fund, symbol FV, which did everything under the wrapper. So now the individual advisor who has ticket charges and costs for his customers and whatnot made sense to own the FV. That FV, that ETF went to $5 billion in a matter of about three and a half years. There's nothing out there other than the Standard & Poor's 500 or one of these big indexes that's done that. Take me back 31 years ago. You and your wife were trying to save $10,000. Could you imagine talking in terms of $5 billion or the takeout price of the NASDAQ? I mean, you personally, entrepreneurially. We never never looked for it and never hoped for it. And you know what? As far as running a business is concerned, if money is your objective, it will never happen. If helping other people is your objective, money will show up. That's plain and simple. Full disclosure, you are listening to Tom Dorsey, investing legend, indexing legend, uh, a guy who's who's espoused investor education now. You've, you'd say your first day on uh, in the brokerage business was in the early 70s? Yeah, mid-70s. And so you traversed the, 50, the nifty 50 period, oh, yeah. the gold standard shock. Everything. 
everything. Uh, so the, the gold standard shock back in 1978 when gold went to $800 a share, uh, silver was 52. I remember the gambling stock craze. I mean, it, it, you know, once I, I, I interviewed uh, Charles Schwab when mm-hmm. I was at Business Week. And he has a bowling pin that the Stanford Graduate School of Business kids gave him. Uh, referring to a bowling bubblette of the late 60s. Oh, bowling yes. alleys and everything. Well, bowling alleys, you see, my story goes back to dyslexia and not being able to read. I would probably have been voted least likely to ever succeed mm. in every one of my classes because I couldn't read. So I decided to become a professional bowler. Mm. I had a God-given talent for bowling. <laughs> this was in the 60s. And in the 60s, professional bowling bowlers made more money than professional football players. Mm. That was the thing was bowling. That was going to be my direction until I finally flunked out of Richard Blank College and I had to go in the Navy during Vietnam. Interesting. So that was the end of the bowling career. <laughs> and then there was death of equities at Business Week at the timing the bottom of the market. Oh, and yes. No equity culture and um, Volcker breaking the back of inflation and the crash of 87 and then the 90s. I got to tell you, the last time, Tom, people really accosted me and really wanted to talk about the markets was in the, around the year 2000, this time in the year 2000. I mean, even though we've had a spectacular bull run, I think this is the second largest, second longest bull run um, we've had since 2009 right. in history. No one's really talking about markets. I guess because no. it's not a stock picker's market. It's not. Think about, think about this. Now you have exchange-traded funds. If I want to buy a biotechnology stock, why would I select one stock that might be the one that goes down when I can just buy biotechnology in general. Because there's a buy... gambling excitement to it. I, there's well, somebody telling you something. Somebody at a party is like, this guy's this guy's in stage three of this, and let me tell you, it's going to be a game changer. And and you want to you you know you want to get the next Tesla. You want to get the next Ethereum or Bitcoin thing. Whereas you might get a better risk adjusted return with 15 biotech stocks. That's more boring. I don't want people telling me if I from my animal spirits perspective. I don't want people telling me the rule is 72. You double your money in 10 years. The seven twenty-two percent. No, I want to get the big, the big, the big shark. No, I understand. I understand. That's what you makes wanna, it exciting. You want to get that big hit, and that's okay. Get that big hit, but you know, most of the time, you want to. If you look at the way I invest, I use my smart indexing and very various other types of things for the big money. Then I also have portfolios. I have a technology portfolio that might that might own Nvidia, it might own uh, Netflix, it might own Amazon.com, it might own a lot of the big names and whatnot that I just have there because these are the big plays. I'm going to just own those. That's going to be a piece. That's a separate account that holds just technology. But when I look at the big part of my money, I'm driving to Washington D.C. And I get in the left lane and pass, and I get back in the right lane. Sure. And I do very well that way, but that's the way I have to run big money. The smaller type money, I can take the bigger chance and, and have a separate account. It's a, it's a hard discipline to preach. It is. Because i got to tell you, when there is a correction, and we haven't had a true correction or a bear market for the longest time, people f- swear it off, like when you were making cold calls for Merrill Lynch, yes. Pierce Fenner-Smith. And uh, when, when, when everything is hot, people want the hottest thing. Well, you know, the, the, thing, the thing about that too is – Back in the day when everyone just wanted to trade, today when you have a correction like 2008, trading was one thing. You were in for a couple of days and out and in and out and in and out and trade, creating lots of commissions. Now, all of a sudden you have a correction in 2008. Everyone bought into modern portfolio theory. Modern portfolio theory was the thing because we're going to get you spread out over all the different asset classes. And when something's not working, something will be working until 2008 came. Then all of a sudden all the banks went to the margin clerks and said, sell everything, just raise cash. So all the things that were supposed to be uh, uh, different, 
Gold should go up when equities go down. Commodities will go down when, when foreign currencies go up, whatever. They all went down. So they looked at modern portfolio theory and says, what's the story here? I was supposed to have some sort of protection. I didn't get any protection. I've heard nobody address that. And they still push modern portfolio theory today as the way to go. So a customer comes into an advisor net today, he sits down, he takes a test, they determine what his risk level is, whether it's uh, moderate. Well, every, everyone is moderate until the market goes up, then you're aggressive. When the market goes down, you're conservative. So we all start out as moderate. And then there's a computer program that says, here's how much you should have in each one of these equity classes and just let it run. Twice a year, we'll rebalance. We'll sell the things that are doing well and we'll buy the things that are doing poorly. Well, isn't there something in physics that says things in motion tend to stay in motion until mm. acted upon by an opposite force? Why would you just act upon it without an opposite force by taking the things that do well in the year and buying the things that do poorly? I, I don't get it. Because maybe there's a payoff over five or six or seven years. Like if you're taking the example with cap weighting big techs in 99 and 2000 and there was a huge small cap bull market around the corner – you know, investing managers were getting yawned at when they told people there's going to be a reckoning, value is going to come back, small cap value. Nobody wanted to hear that. They didn't want to hear it, but somebody should be watching it. There are value funds and, and growth funds that you can look on a relative strength basis and say, when, when the relative strength changes and moves to value, I have to think value in my portfolios. When it goes to growth, I have to think growth because relative strength is very long term. The signals can last two to two and a half years or longer. So someone has to be watching these things. Someone has to have their eye on them. You can't be blindsided. Close us out. Tell me, tell me what we should be watching, what you think is, is getting too much press, too little press. Well, one of the things we should be watching is exactly what you remembered back in the year 2000. And that brought me back, and I'll never forget it, about those changes from large cap to small cap. You need to watch the large cap versus small cap. How's that doing? And the way you do that is through relative strength, basic children's division. If you have a nephew that's four years old or you have a, a child who's four years old who's been through division already, they can help you with this. You sit down and you do basic division, one thing versus another. You, you have to watch things on a relative strength basis. You have to watch growth versus value on a relative strength basis. This is long-term stuff. You have to, wa to watch um, equal weight versus capitalization weight. That would be the RSP versus the SPX. Mm -hmm. You should be watching that every single day. Or Actually, you shouldn't have to watch it. Your computer will tell you when a change takes place. But you need to be aware that if a change took place and, and the computer said on a long-term basis, go equal weight versus cap weight, you need to be aware of these Ergo, things. Ergo, you are telling me that active management is not dead. I mean, you could call it a rose by any other name, smart indexing, beta indexing. You need human eyes. You need perception. You need a trigger, something to stop. That's right. That's right. And when they say active management, see, a lot of times active management means just that, where you're really active with things and, and you're thinking, boy, I see a trend happening over here or I feel that this is going to happen over here. And if, if, if Trump raises tariffs on, on, uh, on aluminum, therefore I better sell that short over here. You, you should have indexes and things that tell you. you they compare themselves. They're, it's a constant arm wrestling contest. I can tell you when Indonesia is likely to outperform Malaysia. That, that, that these, these are simple things to do, simple arithmetic, simple division, that we do four million and a half different comparison and contrast every night. Wow. Tom, four and a half million. Tom Dorsey, you've been at this for 45 years? 43 years. How many bull Maybe and bear 40, markets have you lost count? 
Oh, Lord. <clears throat> I've seen so much on Wall Street. There's very few people still left around. I'm thinking about putting together a group of us called the uh, Wall Street Wild Hogs. Remember that movie, The Wild Hogs? Why'd you call them the Nifty 80s or something? <laughs> yeah, the Nifty 80s, yeah. It'll be a group of us where you have to have a minimum of 40 years in the business. And we'll come out on the stump and we'll, we'll talk about the markets. I love it. Count me in. Yeah, it'd be cool. Tom Dorsey, I cannot thank you enough. Finally, horse-collared you and got you in studio. Uh, CEO of Dorsey Holdings, founder of the famous Dorsey Ride & Associates, now NASDAQ, uh, bought since 2015. Uh, it is an honor and I can't wait for you to co-host with me. Thanks. I would love to. You just let me know. Full disclosure, our engineer is the venerable John Valentine. Find us and like us on NPR One. It's a great app. Check them out at NPR One and on iTunes at FullDRadio.com. Subscribe. Ask about sponsoring this fine program. Always, we are all weather, growth, value, low, high, vol, cap, equal weighted, unlimited, 795 trades. I'm Robin Farzad. Back with you next week. Oh,